Hey, Snappers, it's your boy, Glenn. And I want to thank everyone who supported the show enough to make it America's number one podcast for the first time ever last week. I'd like to give a big welcome to the newcomers. And even if you've been with us for a while, you may not know, four years ago, we were making this show out of my living room. It's come a long way since then, and we owe it all to you. It's your tweets, your Facebooking, your talking to your neighbors and friends and family that make this project work. We still operate on a skeleton staff working 24-7. Please know that you are our only marketing team. You're what put these voices on the air. You're changing the world one story at a time. And Snappers, we appreciate it. Thank you. And now, on with the show. Okay, so it's like this. Every single morning, right before I'm on my way out of the door, I reach down in my pocket and discover that I've lost my car keys. Or my phone, or my wallet, or my jetpack. Who took my jetpack? So then I tear up the house, screaming and cursing, until I find the missing item. And I leave several minutes later. And that's all well and good. But what if you find something that you didn't even know you had? Something amazing. Something beautiful. Something that changes everything. Today, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Fire. Incredible stories where people find what they are most certainly not looking for. Get ready. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. We're going to kick off today's found episode with Derek Amato, who decided to take a little trip back to his hometown. In 2006, I went to visit my mother in the Midwest right before my 40th birthday, and I got together with a couple high school friends for a barbecue, and and we were at the swimming pool in the apartment complex. You know, one thing led to another. It became doing backflips off the side of the swimming pool into the water, and I went running along the side of the pool, and I dove in towards the shallow end. Well, matter of fact, the very shallow end. And I remember striking the bottom with the upper left part of my head. It was just this enormous bang. It was as if someone just stuck two you know, sticks of dynamite in my ears and my, my head exploded. I remember coming out of the water and reaching immediately for my ears because I thought my ears were bleeding. I couldn't hear anything, so I, I absolutely had no no understanding of what was going on. And I guess I made it towards the edge of the pool, and when I got to the edge of the pool, I collapsed, and they pulled me out onto the, um, to the concrete, and I went unconscious. I don't, I don't remember anything after hitting my head, but they took me to the emergency room and I was diagnosed with a major concussion with no bleeding. They sent me home to my mom's house and I slept for about four days. I remember waking up on the fifth morning. My neck was sore, 
My head was pretty swelled up in that upper area. My eyes were blackened. And I knew my hearing wasn't right. And I, I didn't know at that time that I had lost almost half of the hearing from the impact in my left side. Everything was dampened. But I felt reasonably okay, just a little beat up. That evening, I went over to my best friend Rick's house, and I went over to visit him, and he's got a little studio, and he was playing his guitar, and so he sat down to take a break. And I had this incredibly strange, bizarre feeling that I simply needed to go sit down at that little keyboard he had up there. I've never really been a, a musician, but it was just... It felt right, so I went over and sat down at it, and um, my fingers began to play as, as if I had played pretty much all my life. And this is the very first piece that I ever played. looked at me and I looked at him and I didn't know what to say. I was freaked out. It's, what are you supposed to think when you all of a sudden sit down at a piano and you've never touched one and your hands are moving at a, at a rapid pace and doing things that you've never, never even tried? We didn't know what to think. It was like eerie, intense, and at the same time, beautiful. I wasn't sure how to really explain it to my mom. I didn't know how to where to start. So I asked her while we were having a cup of coffee if she would go with me to the, the music store that I would like to show her something. And we jumped in the car and headed over to the music store. We walked in and went over to one of the pianos with my mom. I sat down and I started playing and she started crying. And then the salesman come over and said, how long have you been playing? And I said, well, about five hours. And of course, he gave me the strangest look like, a, like I was pulling his chain. And my mom sat there crying. I, I, I played for maybe 10, 20 minutes for her. We got up and got in the car and it was a very quiet drive back to the house. A week, week or two goes by and I, I reached out to Dr. Daryl Treffert, whom was the advisor for the film Rain Man. I was diagnosed with um, acquired musical savant syndrome, which is immediate musical genius or immediate ability. My mind basically creates a pattern of black and white squares that almost go in like a ticker tape in a circle. So these black and white squares are my brain's musical notation. For some reason, those black and white squares tell my hands where to go. So I don't capture all of them. There's, there's absolutely no way to. They're going at a pace that is so intense that I, I can grab and display some of it, but certainly not all of it. The doctors refer to this as synesthesia. Those black and white squares dictate what I play. I have no control of what, what comes next. I have no idea what those notes are going to be. So sometimes it's pop and sometimes it's rock and sometimes it's Beethoven-ish. From my understanding, there's about 30 acquired savants on the planet, and I am the only one to be an acquired musical savant from a brain injury. Before the accident, I was a pretty typical aggressive business person. I was making great money, but I'd go to work and chase the almighty dollar, and then I'd 
come home and go to bed and do it all over again the next day. But after the accident, because of all the attention I was getting, I just didn't, I never went back to corporate America. It's a challenging road when you just walk away from your job and, and think you're going to become a, a superstar because of a gift the next day. It doesn't quite happen like that. It's been the financial struggle, and it's been brutal. I have a 1984 Winnebago. Little did I know it would become my, my shelter for, well, quite a while. I was homeless. I didn't have any running water and no heat, and I ate nuts and dried fruit and tuna that comes in those little foil bags. You know, you start to second-guess yourself, and you say, am I being selfish? Am I, am I chasing a dream with a gift that may not possibly pay your bills? It's a bit intense when, when doctors and the world start putting a title on you that, that is so profound. And you know, just because you fall into the title of a savant doesn't mean you're the best piano player on the planet. They're, my skills are above average maybe, but I've never known how to read music. I still don't get it. It just makes absolutely no sense. I can't even get a grasp where a C or a D or an E should be on the piano. I, I can hear the tone, I just can't, I can't show you where it is. I'm just able to, to take what I'm seeing being produced in my mind and make some sense of it with my hands. People call me and say they wanted me to get involved with their charities. I go in and I do like um, like a 40 or a 70 minute storyteller set. I, I play a little, I talk, but the, the work I get is sporadic and when I get invited to, to perform or speak or what have you. There's a price tag on everything we do in this lifetime. And I get overwhelmed and overstimulated and sometimes I'm just exhausted and I go into my little space where I feel okay and that's usually in the studio that's my comfort zone you know i get asked often what it would be like if if i wake up tomorrow and if it's not here and and uh when i sit down at the piano or you know it, it's always a surprise so i i live in the moment and i think i'm going to continue to live in the moment because that's what brings me joy please, please, do not try to reproduce this effect at home. Some of the music for that piece, including the song you just heard, was played by Derek Amato himself. If you want to hear more of Derek's music, we've got links on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was sound designed by Pat Masidi Miller and produced by Anna Sussman. Hey! I found Waldo! Really? Psych! Now, when Snap Judgment, the found episode continues, someone's gonna get rich. Someone's gonna find love, and someone's gonna discover the most important thing of all. For real, when Snap Judgment the found episode continues. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. Snap touch. Now, you know with this winter weather, it can severely impact your ability to meet with your team. What, with the roads being closed, your flights being canceled, people staying home sick? So, be prepared. Sign up for GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. It's a powerful, simple way to meet and collaborate online no matter what the weather's like. 
You can sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. Then, no matter where you are, you'll instantly be connected to your team, share your screen to collaborate on projects in real time, and turn on your webcam to see each other face-to-face if you want to do that. It's just like being in the same room. So, even when you can't make it into the office, you can still meet in person and be productive. Start working smarter today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. There's no credit card required to get started. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SNAP. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SNAP. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the found episode. We're exploring stories where people find exactly what they are not looking for. Our next guest, April Wolf, is a Snap favorite. She's a writer in L.A., and a couple years ago, April decided that she needed a change. She moved to Connecticut and said goodbye to her friends, goodbye to her home, and goodbye to her boyfriend. I packed up all of my things and took only what could fit into my Honda Civic and then left a very small box of photos and memorabilia in a friend's house. I'm not a sentimental person. I perhaps thought that I was going to come back and get them, but I wasn't totally sure. I stayed in this cabin there in Connecticut, and what followed was a two-month-long intense courtship with the man I love through internet letters and emails. Occasionally I would call this guy. We would talk on the phone about mundane things, but there was so much in between us. Ended up taking this strange job. The job was cleaning out hoarder houses. I didn't know anything about what it would even entail. All I knew is that I was given like a mask to put over my face and a little pitchfork and like a shovel with some trash bags. So my boss gave me a little bit of lead-in. He got us to the house and um, it was a fire hazard. There was so much contaminated waste there. They would have to demolish the house if someone didn't come in and clean it up. Barbara lived in that house. She didn't want outside people coming in to take care of it, but it was necessary. So we have three hours while they took her out to go in and clean out as much as possible. Our boss said, we don't want to keep anything. There was another guy I was working with as well. His name was Mo, and he was 70 years old. And he was also the kind of guy who would pull Werther's originals out of his pocket and give them to me. The second that we tried to open up the door... We couldn't. We could only wedge it open like maybe three or four inches. There was trash everywhere. And so we spent maybe like 30 minutes just trying to get the front door open, which a person lives there. The smell when we walked in was drenched in rotting food. It's, It's really just a sea of furniture and scrapbooking supplies. There were like these huge like cave spiders that were living like all along the walls. The second that we took off the masks, our faces were just covered in soot, completely black under the mask. And then we would have to actually get new masks every 30 minutes because they were just getting destroyed by the air in there. Mo was in the kitchen. He would scream out to me, you know, are we having fun yet? One of the things that was frustrating, so many of the things that were piled on the floor were organizational cabinets. Also, there were so many pairs of black pants that had been ordered. You can see like a QVC tag attached to them. This next pant that we are going to share with you, wowza. (laughs) Apparently, Barbara had really, really bad knees. And that was one of the reasons why all of these things started stacking up on top of each other. Because what would happen is Barbara had gained a bit of weight. And whenever she would get something, if she dropped it, then it would just fall on the floor. And then she couldn't pick it up. So she would order more things. And then if she dropped those, it would fall on the floor and she couldn't pick it up. And so what ended up happening is that layers and layers of her life had been dropped on the floor stepped on and then covered 
until the floor was maybe three feet higher than it should have been. Don't wait. Stock up. One of the things that I was wondering about was, you know, those little grabby things that you can hold in your hand and like pick something up that's far away. Just as I was thinking about like, well, why doesn't Barbara have one of those things? I ended up actually uncovering like 10 of them that had also been dropped. It became this like layers of sadness and sadness for me. And so I had been being very careful and I'd had like a little basket set aside where I was trying to save the good things that I thought for her. One of the couches that I saw, I lifted up. The couch was actually on top of another couch, by the way. And I saw these little eyes peeking out at me in like this matted white fur. And I realized that there was a cat in the room. She was emaciated. You know, after we quarantined the cat, I just, I got a little bit mad at Barbara. I, I just, I said, screw it, Barbara. I'm just gonna clean everything out. There's, there's no being gentle. I'm just gonna throw it all away. And I was like sweeping whole hordes of things into these giant black trash bags and just tossing them out. We took a break and I noticed that there was a small trailer that was out back. It, it was probably about eight by 10 and it was rusted out and the wheels were falling off of it. And Mo looked at me and he said, Barbara used to live there. She used to live in that trailer. And I was like, what? Because everything that I had heard for, about Barbara was that, you know, she was over 300 pounds. There was no way that she could just live in that trailer. And he said there had been a fire in her house. And so while the house was being repaired for several years, she lived in this small, rusted-out trailer. Every single thing that I learn about her just becomes, like, more and more of a mystery. Like, who is this woman? And then how does it get to this point? We got a phone call. Barbara's on her way back. You only have 45 minutes. And I did not want to see Barbara, and I didn't want Barbara to see me, because it felt a little bit too too invasive. I had 45 large black trash bags that were just sitting out on the front lawn. And I was sweeping all this stuff up, and then I saw this chair, and I was like, oh my god, okay, so I haven't gotten underneath this chair. I have to get under there. I lifted up the chair, and then... So there are 50 greeting cards down there. And I opened up one of them, and it said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I opened up another one, and it said the same thing. It said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And then, you know, I I continued and opened up all of them. They're all very similar. The final one, though, said, I know you loved him more than anything else in the world. And there were, there were about 10 blank notebooks there. And I opened up all of them th- through, and, and there was nothing. And in the bottom one, there was a single poem. I can't remember all of the words, but I know the end and the beginning were the same. And it said, why did you leave me? I saw those greeting cards in those notebooks, and I didn't throw them away. It was the one thing I didn't throw away. I just put the chair over them, and I and I pushed it back to the wall, and I just left it there for her. I got out of her house right before she got there. I saw the back of her head in the car when it pulled up, and then I drove away very quickly. Putting these puzzle pieces together, this woman who loved this man so much, apparently losing him in this fire in her house, I realized that I didn't have anything that was heavy enough for me to hold on to, for me to keep in my life, something that meant that much to me, except for this man that I love who felt really, really heavy in my heart. And I ran away from him. And so I needed to go back. And I packed up everything that I had from that cabin, and I drove all the way across the country to Portland, Oregon, to be with him. And... That box, that small box of pictures, mementos, those things that I left with my friend, I went back and I picked those up. And when I was looking through them, suddenly this this picture caught my eye. It was the man I just moved to Portland to be with in the photo. In the future when maybe I'm old and I'm senile and a woman has to be hired to come and clean my house, if she finds this photo in all of my things then I want her to know its weight and its gravity, and I want her to save it for me, because it's the heaviest thing that I own.
Thanks so much, April Wolf. And good news, Snappers. April and her man are still going strong. April's currently working on a short film called Widowers. You can find her writing online. We're going to have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, when we were putting together this show, the found episode, we came across a remarkable story. I asked Keith Deserick to tell me about his six-year-old daughter, Elena. She was the kind of girl that when you see her, she would always sit and she would cross her legs. She was very proper. She was always in many ways not only a teacher uh, to her younger sister, but also kind of like a mom. She really had a truly strong, nurturing spirit about her. We discovered around Thanksgiving. At the time, she was starting to stumble. And with Elena, she had a very particular way of walking, very straightforward and very uh, neat and graceful. And she started to trip. And we went to the doctor and we asked them about that. And they initially looked at it and said, well, she's walking normal. But for us, we knew there was something there. Ultimately, um, they did some scans. And at the point that they did a scan, that's when they found the tumor. They found a tumor in her brain, which is called DIPG, or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. It's one of those cancers that they feel if a child survives, it's probably because they were misdiagnosed. We looked at Elena, and we told her that she had a bump in her head, that it was cancer, but everything was going to be all right. The thing about this type of cancer is that she may lose the ability to move a foot or move a hand or anything along those lines, but she never loses her mind. And she was a smart girl. She's a very smart girl. And I think she did realize what was going on. We started to get the sense that Elena had a need to reach out to us as she was going through the treatments. Initially, the doctors would turn to us and they would say, Enjoy the time that you have. I remember counting the days, and we came down to 135 days. That's what the doctors told us was the most that we could expect with our time with our daughter. I believe we had about a little over 250 days that we spent with Elena. After Elena passed away, we started to find notes The first place we started to find them was really on the bookshelf. We pulled a couple of books off the shelf, and at that point, some notes dropped out. I love you, Mom, Dad, Grace, her sister Gracie. Gracie was only three years old. Initially, we looked at it and said, maybe this is just a note we forgot about. Maybe she brought this home from school. But we had no belief that necessarily Lena was hiding them. But as we would pull off these books and we would start to find these notes, it was really the number of notes that amazed us. Every single one of them had a common theme. They would all tell us that she loved us. Once we started to find literally hundreds of these notes, we started to realize that there was something more at play here. There was something that she had done and intended us to find these because we started to not only find them between the books on the bookshelf, but we started to find them between dishes, within our clothes. We started to find notes that were written on the letterheads that were taken from hotels that we visited on the way to the hospitals. At that point, you immediately start looking everywhere you can possibly find. You start pulling you know, clothes out of the drawers. You start looking in deep corners of closets, hoping to find yet another note because it's it's this memory that you, you, you got to have. Some of them would say, I love you, Mom, Dad, Grace, and she would draw it with a big heart, with arrows. Some of the notes would be almost kind of a rally for Gracie, and they would say, Gracie, go, go. We have some notes that were written just to Mom, and they would say, I love you, Mom. We had notes that were written to me, and they would say, I love you, Dad. We'd feel sadness but we would feel warmth. They would be there for us on the coldest of days, the days that in our life that we will always remember but will always want to forget. 
and Elena would be there side by side with us to help us get through it. There's always one note that will be the most important to me and also to my wife. And we never really told each other about it. I remember finding a note when I went up to work after returning to work after um, Elena's death. And she has a little desk in the corner of my office because she would go into work with me for the first couple hours before I would take her to school. I went over there and I opened up the top of the desk. And there, in the drawer, was an envelope which said Dad on it. And it had a date, had a stamper date because she had taken one of the stampers I had from, from work. So I know what day she wrote the note. I've never opened up that envelope because I never want to find that last note. When I talked with my wife and, you know, we were, we had, we had never talked about this. My wife said, well, I found actually in one of my old briefcases a note from Elena that was in an envelope that says mom on the front. And she said, I've never opened it. We were doing the exact same thing. Um, and so to this day, my wife and I, most valuable notes that we will ever remember are notes that we've never read. Squeeze your little darlings. Squeeze them. Hug them, kiss them, tell them how much you love them. I know I'm going to squeeze mine. Big thanks and love to Keith Deserick for sharing his family story with us today. He and his family are fighting for a cure for cancer. Find out more about their work at notesleftbehind.com or snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. You're listening to the found episode. Snap Judgment will be right back. Stay tuned. Hey, Snappers, thanks for listening to the show. You know, there are lots of other NPR podcasts, including the TED Radio Hour, hosted by my main man, Guy Raz. On the TED Radio Hour, it's a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems. Find it on iTunes under Podcast. Oh, yes, this is powerful stuff. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX NPR. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're diving into stories where real people find that which they are not looking for. And I cannot wait for you to hear this next piece. I cannot wait. Some of you know that Snap's Stephanie Fu interviews musicians for her podcast, Stage Dive. So she spoke to singer-songwriter Sean Hayes. You may know him for his song, Powerful Stuff. But Sean's story does not start with his music. It starts with a book that was given to him as a present. And inside the book, there was a bunch of different stories. And one of the stories was taken from a radio program called Tossing Away the Keys, which was about men who had been serving death row sentences in Angola prison. A lot of the men uh, are afraid they're going to be forgotten in jail. They had interviewed uh, several of these men. The one that stuck out was named Maurice Bickham, who had been in Angola prison, I think, for 40-some years. And fortune of those years was on death row in solitary confinement. Here is the tape from Tossing Away the Keys. My name is Maurice Bickham. My number is 75251, and I'm 72 years old. I've been in prison since 1958. 31 years later, and I'm still locked up. My crime... His murder. In 1958, he had been in a fight with his girlfriend and the police showed up and he got into an argument with them and supposedly they were Dragon Clan's members. They said they were going to come back and get him later that night to kill him. And he went home and then later that night they did show up. (laughs) 
They shot at him and he got shot and he shot both of those police officers. He was a, a black man living in a white neighborhood. And of course, nobody came forward to witness what they had saw in his neighborhood. So he was uh, put on trial and sentenced to death and spent 14 years in solitary confinement before the death penalty was abolished in Louisiana. So then he served out life without parole. One of the things that, that he talked about in the story was tending these rose bushes and how they uh, gave him hope and extra meaning serving his sentence. Come over here, I want to introduce you to the beautiful rose bush on the whole yard. This is one here, is my favorite. I named it after my wife, Ernestine. It, a beautiful pink rose. And some way or another, I keep it trimmed and uniform up until, I call it my beauty. I know it sounds funny, but these are my company keepers. I enjoy these bushes. See, if it wasn't for these bushes, I wouldn't have nothing to do. So these bushes have come to be close, close, very close to them. What really stuck out to me was this man who had such dignity in his voice and his outlook, even though he had spent all these years in prison and really had no hope of getting out, he still did have hope and he's, and he's just, he didn't have any blame in his voice for his situation and so it stuck with me and, and I wrote a song called Rosebush Inside and in the song I just wanted to remind myself to uh, be grateful for what I have. Just kind of an everyday little mantra uh, to sing to yourself sometimes when you're waiting in traffic and getting angry about silly things. He was wrongly accused 40 years and still survived Don't you know Not for a moment, no you think the world owes you, she don't owe you anything. I wanted people to know about his story, and that's why, beside the title, I put Maurice Bickham, but then one of the letters in his name on the record had got misspelled. So then I reblogged about it after I put the record out, just to let people know and point people towards his story. I never did write him. I thought about it, but, you know, in the back of my head, I was, I was thinking he probably already had passed away. And then it wasn't until years after that that I, I got a little strange email. And I opened it and said, Dear Mr. Hayes, I was listening to your song, Rosebush, which was from me when I was in Angola. And it's my great desire to visit your performance at the rickshaw stop in January 2009. If it's it was possible, possible, it would be a, be a pleasure for me. you to make it available for me and my family and friends to come and see you perform and meet you in person. Thank you and God bless you. My name is Maurice Bickle. God bless America. Home sweet home. I'm glad to be in it. Maurice had survived 37 years in prison and always retained this faith that he would get out. I had strong hopes of getting out. I locked up on a Saturday morning. Monday night I asked, I said, Lord, I'm in trouble. I want to know what I'm going to get out of it. Honey, I don't know who I was in a dream or vision or what, but my grandmother come back to put in my bed and talk with me just like I'm talking with you. A vision of family members that had passed came and said he would make it through this. So mama said, go, do help others all you can. I said, I'm going to start right now. And that's what I did. Doing everything I could to help others and I kept my record straight. I think the straight record is actually what saved him. The producer who made the radio piece, David Isay, started a campaign to free Maurice. So a judge commuted his sentence to 37.5 years on good behavior, miraculously. My lawyer says to me, Bickham, you stayed in 37 years. What you gonna be when you get out? It's just a plain old Bickham up and down the street. I got out in January the 10th, 1996. I never will forget that day. That was the happiest day of my life. Oh, it was one Wednesday morning. It was kind of amazing. And the warden, when we walked to the front gate, he said to me, Bickham, what you thinking about? So I'm thinking about them seven times y'all give me a death center at 12.01. I said, now tonight at 12.01, I'm signing myself out. He shook my hand and said, have good luck. I said, that's all I can have. And I walked out. 
kneeled ground, picked up some of that dirt, kissed it, put it back there. And here I am today. My being locked up was a, a wonderful experience and a blessing to me. And people said, what? How could it be a blessing? Well, I like fast cars. And if I'd have been out, I'd allowed to wrap one around a telegram post or a bridge or something been dead. You know, God checked me, put me in a place and took care of me. Out now. And anybody drive a little old speed limit, I don't want to ride with them. Being free is being able to make your own decisions. You have to bear your own burden that comes out of your own decision. Now Maurice is 95, and his dignity and his uh, joy for life to find me and to come out and go to a rock and roll show late at night and show up, he's just living so much more fully than so many people who are 20 even, with no anger, even though he's been through something none of us could imagine. He showed up to the show in a limousine with his friend, and they were both dressed full on. The nines came in, got to meet him and talk to him for a while. Uh, he was mystified at where I had the story, and, and he wondered if I'd maybe spent time in prison with him. I played the song, you know, right away. I wanted to introduce it. It was such a strange story to try to tell an audience full of people. People are understanding this in a much bigger way. There's a man doing time, keeping the rose bush alive. He was wrongly accused of 40 years and still survived. There's a man oh boy, it was beautiful. Everybody was dancing. Well, he had some songs that I really loved, but the one about the rose bush, it kind of brought back memories, you know? It made me feel that the thing that I longed for had come to be reality. Like when I be sitting on that bush, hoping that I'd be out someday. Now I'm out and feel good to know that somebody still remembers me. And now the responsibility and the understanding of how stories work is, is more being revealed to me. Um, you can't help but change the story by telling a story. You actually become part of a story. <laughs> so it's a strange responsibility to be aware of. Don't you know you got all the sunshine for a moment more? You got all the sunshine to think the world owes you. You got all the sunshine, they don't owe you with things. You got all the sunshine. Thank you so much to David Isaac the founder of StoryCorps. He produced Tossing Away the Keys, and we thank him for letting us use his tape on our show. Thanks as well to Sean Hayes. He made all the music in this piece. And finally, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Maurice Bickham, for sharing your story with Snap. Snap judged me. That, that, it's, good, it's good sometimes to think a matter over for you. Make decision. I, I don't make no swift decision no more. I, I say like this, if it's too important to rest overnight on, well, I do not have much to do with it, you know. All right, Maurice. We'll definitely take that into consideration. Now then, you can even ask singer-songwriter Sean Hayes. Every artist gets their lean moments on the way to fame and fortune. Our next story, it starts with Corbett Redford. He's about to hit a new low, but he's not sure he's going to survive. I am a notoriously unlucky person. I don't gamble because when I gamble, I always lose big. I don't win contests. I've had some waves of really bad luck in my life. 15 years ago, one particularly horrible, probably the worst wave of bad luck I've ever had. I was fired 
after coming home from tour with my band. And my friends who I run a record label with, they all let me stay on a couch. It was in a warehouse in the city. A couple weeks later, I was dumped on Valentine's Day. And while leaving my girlfriend's house and heading home, I got robbed at gunpoint. So it was a pretty bad day. I thought it couldn't get any worse. And then I went and I opened the door of the warehouse space. A sewage line had broke. My belongings were covered in filth. So I was like, I can't, I can't be here. I just have to get out of here. And I went to the communal space in the warehouse, and uh, I saw this strange package that had just been delivered. I picked it up, and I looked at the name, and it wasn't anybody who lived there. I knew that there had been a lot of people who lived there over the years, so maybe it was somebody that used to live there. I looked at the address, and the address wasn't the address that I was at. It was a different address. The next day, I picked it up and I gave it back to the postman. A few days later, it came back. So at this point, it stayed around there for a few weeks. People would come home drunk from shows and stuff and kicking it around like a football just for fun. And, and I remember a few times people kicking it so hard that it started to split. It was just beaten. So here I am, no job, no girlfriend, a lot of time on my hands. I look at the address. I'm like, that's just a street over. I'm going to go put this in the mailbox of whoever's house that it belongs at. I'm walking down the street, and I, I don't see the numbers. I, the street ends, and it turns out this address just doesn't exist. So now I know why the postman was confused. I bring it back. I toss it back into the pile of mail. <laughs> and one day I see it laying in the hallway by itself, all dusty and beaten. I'm just going to open it. I went over, I picked it up, and I opened it. And inside was this magazine that was in a different language. And the edges of the magazine were stapled shut. It was bulging, too. The magazine was holding something inside of it. It felt like a T-shirt when I squeezed it. I cracked the top staples, and I saw a bunch of purple gift paper. I parted that paper. And there was a huge stack of money. I, I think I said, like, whoa, whoa. My friend who was working on the computer for like the record label in the back room heard me making this noise. I think he just sensed an urgency, grabs his keys and goes, come on, dude, let's go. What, what are you talking about, man? This is stupid, this is crazy. He goes and parks at a park. He cranks his seat back and kind of hunches over, grabs the envelope for me, takes the whole stack of money out and he starts counting it on the floor underneath the steering wheel. I think every thousand he'd count, he'd, he'd say like 2,000, 3,000. There's $10,000 in it. I'm frozen. So much is going through my mind. I made a decision. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this money. There's the fear. Somebody's got to come for me. But I thought immediately right there, I was like, you know what? If you spend it, if you give this to people, you pay off your debts. If you put these records out, it will be gone. First thing I did, I looked over to my friend. I was like, I owe you money. He said, yeah. I said, how much? Take that and take 500 more. Let's just do this. Takes it and gives me back the envelope. He's like, what do you want to do now, dude? You just found $10,000. Go to the record store. So I went to the record store. I went and bought 200 records, paid a bunch of debts to a bunch of people who had been helping me. The next thing I did was put the money aside to put out four records for our record label. And I feel like that put so much steam behind us. It helped us carve even who we are today, put our mark on the world, if you will. Before I know it, $10,000 that wasn't mine had been spent in less than a week. So a few months later, my friends and I were sitting on the stoop of the warehouse. And this English guy comes up on a bicycle with one handlebar. He's wearing a, a tweed jacket and he stops. He's very whimsical. And he says, uh, hi, my name is Blue. I conceived my seventh child on the middle stone at Stonehenge and I'm an empath I'm a seer a bit of a psychic he says and uh, he starts giving readings to a few of us that were sitting there he was pretty spot on he got to me and he said you're the dreamer you're a bright and loving man with a dark cloud that follows you uh, and you recently had good fortune and a bunch of my friends kind of laugh he says I'm on my way to gamble and uh, a friend of mine recently had a bunch of money go missing. And all the blood fell from my face. And I was like, that's a shame that that happened. He says, well, if you hear anything about it, I hang out at that card house down the block. And he, he rode his bicycle off. 
So he leaves, and now I have this idea in my head that I know where this money came from. I had a lot of fear, like, you know, somebody was going to come break my legs. I'm telling this story now, and I kind of still have that fear. But I, I, I feel like it changed everything. I mean, that money, it changed my life in the best possible way. It could even be said that it, it saved me and made me who I am. I know people win the lottery, but nobody finds a bag full of money. It actually happened to me. I'm, uh, I'm not always that unlucky. When I'm low and feeling unimportant And all my money's gone I remember that I still know somebody Who knows somebody who brushed past somebody Who knows somebody who could call somebody Who could call somebody Who could get me in touch with the president Corbett continues to tour the U.S. with his band, Bobby Joy Bola. That was their music you just heard. You can hear more of it and watch their videos that the mysterious package helped pay for at snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Mark Ristich. You have found yourself at the end of the found episode of Snap Judgment. <laughs> Get it? You found yourself at the end of the found. If you did not find the whole thing, not to worry. Full episodes, pictures, movies, all that available right now for your pleasure at snapjudgment.org. And do we have Facebook? <laughs> Facebook doesn't work without Snap Judgment. That goes double for Twitter. Our handle is snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and an inveterate team of story trackers who have never been lost, only found. Let me introduce the chief Sherpa himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Help me find my way. Never found a beat he didn't like. Pat with C.D. Miller. <laughs> Stephanie Fu finds time for Anna Sussman. Anna Sussman found Stephanie Fu's secret identity. Julia DeWitt finds wallets in other people's pockets. Renzo Gorio finds that he is missing a wallet. Nick Vanderkoe found pictures he should not have. Will Urbina took some pictures he should not have. Did you ever see yourself cruising down the road, top speed, top down, only to suddenly see flashing lights behind you? Well, don't worry. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and they do not have the authority to make traffic stops. Pedal to the metal, baby. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, rolling the public in chocolate and peanut butter until the public tastes delicious. PRX.org. And finally, this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could be chilling in your little home under the hill and have a bunch of strange people come knocking on your door with a ridiculous story about some dragon. And you could follow these people, and just when you lose track of where they went, you could find a magic ring in a dark cave, like precious. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.